Thank you. Glad to be here again. Getting to be sort of regular. Sorry that it's uh, for the Atkinson family. Sorry that it's under such uh, trying circumstances as stomach virus. It's not a lot of fun, but I am glad to be here uh, with you again and uh, glad to um, be able to preach. So let's give our attention this morning to God's Word. Uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Grass withers, flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider. Lord Jesus, these are your words, and we need to hear from you this morning. Whatever it is that we think we need, whatever it is that we think that we want, what we need more than anything is to meet with you and to hear from you. And so we pray that you would do that as you have promised, that you will be with be with us this morning and that you, in fact, will teach us. Jesus, overcome our sinful hearts and unclog our ears. Open our minds, we pray. Jesus, we ask it in your name. Amen. I want you to think about, I want you to imagine, uh, or remember it, rather. Uh, remember the best party that you've ever been to. Whatever it is, the best party that you, at which you've ever been, whether it's a birthday party, a wedding party, whatever it is, going away party, those generally probably aren't good ones, but um, the best party you've ever been to, think about it, sort of take yourself back there. Uh, I think the best party that I've been to was the weekend of the wedding of one of my good friends that I grew up with. Uh, her wedding weekend was I was, a, it was, I was privileged to be there. And it was amazing. Um, we did, we, there were a handful of well-known people there, so we sort of rubbed elbows with famous people. Um, we had the best of everything. It was the best food, the best drink, uh, the best band. It was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, we, uh, and of course, you know, the best part is that it's, it's free to me and to the guests, right? Um, so as you think about the best party that you've ever been to, the one that you enjoyed the most, um, I want you to think about why it was so great. Why do, you, why do you like it so much? And I'm sure that it's, it's simply because 
for a little while, you get to put down your cares and your concerns, and you just get to enjoy, right? You just get to live and have fun. Just have a good time. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that it resonates so much with us, uh, that right now as you think about the best party you've ever been to, that hopefully that sort of excites you a little bit and you think fondly about it, is because you you and I were built for that. You and I were built to experience life like that, to experience the party. And uh, that's what this passage is about. This passage shows us that uh, Jesus shows up, that he's, it shows us what Jesus has come to do. He's come to earth, and he's come to bring the party. And that might sound strange, and uh, I want you to stick with me and explore this a little bit. He's come to bring the party of the kingdom of God to earth, to us. So this passage tells us that this is Jesus' first miracle, right? Uh, Throughout the the Gospels, uh, there are about 35 miracles recorded, and John chooses seven of them that he refers to as signs. Um, And he calls them signs because they are uh, miracles that point to, uh, granted all the miracles do, but the miracles that point to something deeper than themselves, right? It's not simply what's going on on the surface, but it's a sign. It's a, it's a, um, a living illustration almost of a deeper spiritual reality. And it's to the deeper spiritual reality that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that's come from God. He's come to save his people and rule over, over them forever. And so in this passage, I want to see three things. We'll see that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's come to bring the party. Uh, That that there's a fullness, a richness to the life that that he has come to bring. And we're going to see that through three points this morning. Three switches that take place in this passage. Three things that switch places. So number one, switch number one, if you will. Uh, The first switch shows us what this party what the party of the kingdom is all about. Uh, really, I guess it, we could say it shows us the reason for the party. So uh, the story we just read, Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding uh, at Cana. And it's probably, uh, wedding parties could be up to a week long. They're huge events. We're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, towards the end. But they're at this week-long party, and they run out of wine. The party runs out of wine. Um, it's the groom's responsibility to provide the wine for, and, the, and the refreshments for the weekend, for the week, and it's run out. So suffice it to say that this, this party is dying fast, right? The record has just scratched, and everybody's, it's about to get really awkward, but not yet. And so Jesus' mother comes to him, and she says, they have no more wine, and we ought to talk about it for just a second. Jesus' response to her, he says, he says, woman. He calls her woman, and a lot of people are troubled by that. And so let's just take just a second to talk about it. Um, Jesus was certainly not being disrespectful to his mother. Um, this term was not one of disrespect. It wasn't one necessarily of endearment either. Um, but it, what appears to be happening, I think we could equate it sort of to, our, uh, to ma'am, saying yes ma'am, no ma'am. Um, I think that's a fair parallel. It's not perfect. 
but it, what seems to be happening is that Jesus is, is communicating to his mother in a respectful and, and appropriate way that as the Messiah, their relationship is going to be different than, than purely mother to son, right? And that he is going to have to set his own agenda for the course of his ministry and life. Um, and I don't think it should trouble us. It, it doesn't seem to trouble Mary or John, the author, and so I don't think it should trouble us that much. So let's, let's clip along. Um, so Mary tells the servants, do what he says anyway. Interesting that she says that. So Jesus tells them, he decides to do something about it. He tells them to fill up the six stone water jars there and then draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so that's when we see this first switch happen, right? Jesus has turned water into wine. He switched water into wine. And I know it's not a true switch because wine did not become water, but you got to go with it. Um, and there are a couple things that we need to look at here that I think are at work. Uh, first, the, fact that the, the very fact that Jesus made wine is a big deal. Now, why is that? Well, because wine in the Old Testament was regularly used as a symbol, uh, as a picture for, the, for God's blessing in the future when the Messiah would show up. Uh, abundance of wine was the, the illustration God would often use to talk about the time when he was going to bless his people with the Messiah, when he was going to come himself and redeem his people. Um, we could turn up Isaiah 25, 6, uh, Joel 3.18, if you're taking notes and want to look up some of those later. And so what this is showing is the very fact that Jesus chooses to turn uh, water into wine is showing us that Jesus is showing us that he's come from God and he's the one. That he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one they've been longing for. And he doesn't just bring the wine, but he's created it, right? Uh, an inherently God activity. He's making it. And he's come to bring blessing from God. Secondly, the amount of wine is, is particularly noteworthy here. Jesus doesn't just make wine to show, I am the Messiah. He makes a lot of wine. How much? Uh, it says the uh, six jars, John tells us, hold 20 to 30 gallons each, which is anywhere from, uh, in our sort of typical bottles of wine, that's anywhere from 600 to 900 bottles of wine. All right, it doesn't matter how big your party is. Six to nine hundred bottles of wine is going to be plenty, right? So you see what John is saying. Yeah, so too. You see what John is saying, or showing, that Jesus is bringing the blessing of God, and he is bringing it in, in mind-blowing proportions. God's not just come to bless a little. He's come to bless beyond your wildest imagination. He's come to bring blessing. And third, let's talk a little bit more about those jars. Uh, the text says that they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, before you would go into the temple, as you would go into the presence of God, you would need to be cleansed, right? And you would clean yourself with water, symbolically showing that uh, God, uh, God cleanses you and allows you into his presence, uh, cleanses you from your sin, according to the Old Testament law. 
Okay, so why is that a big deal? Well, it's interesting that John tells us what they were for, because that means what they're not for is drinking out of. Have you ever thought about that? That, that? That's not what these jars were for at all. It's kind of odd that Jesus would say, take those six uh, stone jars and fill them up with water. And then he's going to use it for people to drink. But Jesus decides to use those jars on purpose. And he fills them all the way to the brim, or he has the servants fill them all the way to the brim. That's certainly no accident. And it's that water that Jesus turns into wine. Now, why is that important? What's the point? And it's this. That those jars were the, I guess you could say, the symbol of the Old Testament law. Right? They were serving in this story to, to be all things Old Testament. The fact that uh, you needed to be cleansed from your sin to be in the presence of God, which certainly is a New Testament idea, of course. But, and that you had to be cleansed yourself, right? that you would wash yourself. Jesus is showing us, showing these people and us, that he's come to fulfill, to fill full, right, as the jars were filled full, fulfill the Old Testament law perfectly. And not just fill it up, but to, to change it. Uh, to bring the blessing of the Messiah, right, the wine, in place of this Old Testament law. He's come to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill the law for us. It's, it's also possible, let me just take a quick side note. It's also possible that, or, that what happened was that Jesus told them to fill up the, the water, excuse me, fill up the jars from the well, go to the well, fill up the jars, right? And then he says, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. Now that word draw in the Greek generally refers to, as it just did earlier, drawing from a well. So it could be that what happened is that Jesus says, draw some water, put it in the jars, now draw some more from the well and take it to the master of the feast. And if that's the case, you see the point, right? That it wasn't the water in the jars that turned to wine, but the water in the well. Which goes even further than the six to nine hundred bottles. Not sure. Either way, the point's the same. But it's interesting. thought I would mention it. Um, so what does that mean for us? How do we apply that? Well, it means that God has brought great blessing to his people. And he's done so in the person and work of Jesus Christ who has come, as he said, or as John said earlier, John in 1, 1, says this, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John talks about it in chapter 1, and here we see a, this, this living picture, the fact that Jesus has come, and he's showing, I've come to give you what you can't get for yourself. I've come, to, I've come to live the law perfectly in your place, to fill up the requirement that you need perfectly. And so what that means is that we stand in relationship to God by grace for free. Because Jesus has come. The second switch that we need to look at, the second switch, I think shows us the quality of the party that Jesus has come to bring. So we see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's come to bring richness and life, uh, the party of the kingdom of God, if you will. 
And the second switch I want to look at talks about the quality of that. How good, how good is it? The second switch we need to look at is in verse 10. The master of the feast tasted the wine, calls the groom over, and says to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. All right, so you see what he's saying, right? Typically, the way it would work, you're having a big wedding uh, party for the week. You would bring out the good stuff first so that people, when they are um, at their sharpest, so to speak, uh, when they're thinking about it the most, when their tastes have not been dulled, they're getting the good stuff so that they will think, this guy can throw a party. This guy brought out really good wine. He didn't mess around, right? And then when tastes have dulled, people are uh, enjoying themselves. They've had plenty of good wine, and now they're not as worried, much worried about how it tastes, maybe. Then as, as supplies get lower, you bring out the not as good wine. So you make a good impression uh, first. And so at this party, though, the order has been switched. Uh, the, uh, the master of the feast comes to the groom, and he says, most people do it that way. You brought out the good stuff. You brought out the good stuff last. All right, so think about it, though, because you've got to remember, this party's not gone as planned, right? What the feast master didn't know is that the groom had brought out his good stuff first, just like everybody else did, right? And it had run out. So what that means is that the stuff that Jesus made was amazing. It put the wine that Jesus made put the good stuff that the groom brought originally to shame. Not to shame the groom, of course. The wine that Jesus... Think about that. Jesus didn't just make wine. That would have been amazing. Jesus made really good wine. Why did he do that? Uh, he, he doesn't just save the party from dying out, but... He injects it with, with life that it never even knew, right? He takes a party and he doesn't just restore it, but he gives it life that, it, that it's never seen before. Uh, the year after I graduated, I went to Ole Miss, uh, University of Mississippi, and the year after I graduated, my wife's brother, whose name is Gate, uh, moved to Austin, Texas. He was doing an RUF internship there. And so I went to go visit him, and I happened to go on a football game weekend. Uh, they were, Texas was playing some other team, I don't remember. And so we went to a football game, and we got invited to a tailgate party. And we paid, uh, I think, we paid like $3 uh, to be a part of this tailgate that was basically, like, it was fine. It was basically like some George Foreman burgers and, you know, some chips and a drink and, you know, some brownies. It was all right. Um, and so we're standing around talking. I'm meeting some of his friends. And... Uh, one of his friends who's sort of kind of hosting this thing comes up and we're chatting and he says, it's a pretty great tailgate, huh? And uh, I saw Gate sort of look nervous, afraid of maybe what I might say. Uh, not, I don't think of myself as a rude person, but maybe I am. And I said, yeah, yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. But what I wanted to tell him was that this tailgate's fine, but you have no idea, right? I went to Ole Miss, which I think I just said, and if you know anything about Ole Miss, 
it's known for one thing, and it's not academics. It's not its football program. It's for its social scene, right? On, on game days, the town of Oxford is transformed into one enormous party. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not, not praising it. I'm just saying what it is, okay? And uh, we have what's called the Grove, which is a, a big, um, well, grove of trees in the middle of campus. And that people pile into on game day and spend all day partying. The Grove's packed with people. They all bring tents. All right, I'm not kidding you. People set up uh, their, their tables, tents. Satellite TVs, chandeliers hanging from these things. People are dressed like this. Um, it, it's one of the biggest parties you've ever seen. All the food's free. People wander in and out of other people's tents they don't know. You take food and you mingle and you talk and you have a big time. And it's good food. People are bringing out nice tablecloths. It's amazing. And so what I wanted to say, I wanted to be able to take him to Oxford and show him that. And this tailgate's okay. I mean, it's fine. But you just you have no idea what a real tailgate is. This is what it is. And that's what Jesus is, is showing us here, as silly as it might sound. He's saying, he's showing up and saying, I am bringing a, a party, a liveliness, a richness to life that you have no idea what it's like. It's so great. It'll blow away anything that you know. So what does that mean for us? Well, the first thing I think it means is it points to the, uh, it points to the quality of Jesus' righteousness. The fact that, um, that he's turned this water into wine, and very good wine, points to the quality of Jesus' righteousness for us. The righteousness that you and I have before God is not some sort of generic righteousness. We're not sort of neutral in God's sight. We're not sort of decent people, right, because of uh, the righteousness that we've been given. But we have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, God himself. So our standing before God is is of the nature of Jesus. It's the... It's of the same stuff that Jesus is. Because we have his righteousness given to us. Talk about that in a second. Secondly, I think it points to the richness and the joy of life in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, certainly, in the new heavens and the new earth, the one day, someday, uh, ultimately it points to that. But even here and now, certainly, in in the not yet just like Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. Let me read that. It says, On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Wow. We have that one day someday that's ahead of us that, that shows what, what awaits us. A richness and, a, and a, a depth of life that we can't imagine. But we also have it here and now in some sense. Not completely, but... But in some sense, right? 
to know that you are in, if, you're, if you trust in Christ, that you're restored completely in your relationship with God, to be in touch with your, with your very purpose as a human being, to be able to be reconciled with the God that made you, brings a richness to life, a depth, a quality that, that can't be surpassed. Now, don't mishear me if that's a word. This is, I'm not trying to preach health and wealth gospel, right? Come to Jesus, be a Christian, and life's a big party, right? Because that, that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's not true at all. In one sense, right? In the sense of, of worldly uh, expectations. If you're a Christian, you're almost certainly not going to be rich and never touched with, um, with any sort of affliction. Um, in fact, life might be quite hard. But to be made right with God brings a richness and a depth, like I've said, that's, that's beyond our imagination. To know that God's pleased with you. Thirdly and finally, the last switch. So we've seen that Jesus switched water into wine. We've seen that uh, we talked about the switch that takes place with the good wine being brought out first versus last. So lastly, this third switch, we need to look at... uh, Well, I think this third switch tells us a little bit about how you and I get into this party. Maybe you're following along and thinking that sure sounds nice. Uh, and you, you're not a Christian, and you would like uh, you would like to come into that party, or you are a believer, and you need to hear it again and rejoice in it. Here it is, this third switch. I think it's a little bit more subtle, but very real. So we need to talk a little bit about this wedding. What is the switch? All right. So weddings, like I said, were an enormous deal back then. People would save their entire lives for these things, um, and last a week long. The groom was responsible for it all. And if you run out of wine, if you can't provide uh, you know, enough resource for the wedding week, it was an incredible embarrassment to you. Incredible embarrassment. There were, in fact, in my research I found, there were sometimes even legal action brought against the groom if you run out of wine. So this is not just sort of an embarrassment like, yeah, I can't believe I did that. It's typical me. This is life-altering. So keep that in mind. So where's the switch? Well, it's the second half of verse 10. The feast master says to the groom, but you have kept the good wine until now. So think about that. Everybody at the party, if you're at the party, you think that groom is awesome because he has thrown the biggest party you've ever seen. He's brought out wine like you've never tasted, and you think that guy is the best party thrower ever, right? So not only did this guy, this groom, not get embarrassed and have his life ruined, maybe. Certainly not a good way to start a marriage, right? Um, Thanks for embarrassing me in front of, oh, I don't know, the town. Um, As opposed to that, not only is tragedy just averted, this guy's the hero. People talk about this party for years afterwards. They compare everybody else's party to his. It It was good, but it wasn't like his. And so here's the question. What did the groom really do in this, in this story? And I think we might, at first glance, say he didn't do anything. And that's actually not true. He did do something. He ran out of wine. 
the groom did contribute to this story by running out of the wine. He's the cause of the problem. Jesus is the one that threw this amazing party and saved the groom. So Jesus did all the work, and this guy got all the credit for it. This guy comes out the hero, not Jesus. This guy did not get what was coming to him, what he deserved, but he got all the credit. And I think here, early on in John's gospel, he's given us a little taste of how, of how God works. Of how God is going to go about, how Jesus is going to go about saving his people. He's going to do so by switching places. He's going to switch places with his people. Because ultimately that's where John's gospel is heading, right? For all the gospels head to the cross. We're all heading towards the cross. And that's the beauty of this passage and, and the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. Not just without sin, but he did everything perfectly. And then he died on a cross, a shameful death, bearing our sin. He switches places with us. So that the sinless son of God is actually forsaken by the father. And that, so imagine that, that Jesus, who just by thinking about it or speaking or whatever, made 900 bottles of wine. Right? He just made it. Is hanging on a cross. And he says, I thirst. Why do you think he says that? Certainly because he's thirsty, but it doesn't make sense. He just like that made 900 bottles of wine. And yet now, uh, later, uh, at the end of John's gospel, he's hanging on a cross and says, I thirst. Why? Because he switched places with the people that he loves. He's taken on our thirst. And he's given us the righteousness, if you will, that can that can make wine just by thinking about it. He takes the punishment for us and he gives us the good stuff for free. Why does he do it? And with this, he does it because he loves us. Simply because he loves us. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that because this is not Jesus' last wedding. This is not the last wedding, in fact, that John talks about. John sort of bookends everything that he writes about Jesus with weddings. Um, the first one that we've talked about here at the outset of Jesus' ministry, his first son, and then the second one, or at least the, uh, the last one, in Revelation 19, 6 through 7, says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. John tells us about this wedding, right? Notice, we don't even know the groom's name. I don't even know the bride's name. Not the point. And then John ends what he writes later in Revelation with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is, of course, Jesus. Jesus' wedding, where Jesus himself is getting married. And who is the bride? It's you and me. It's the people of God. It's his bride. 
Can you imagine that? Can you believe that? That Jesus doesn't just love his people, but he, he loves his people. He loves you and I with, with, with honeymoon affection. So John says he writes this gospel so that you would believe. So Jesus, I hope that we've seen this morning, that Jesus has brought the party. He is the life and the party. He's brought the party and, and he's offered us an invitation for free. Won't you believe and won't you come to the party? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will...